For WCYB Digital Radio, I'm Melissa O'Leary. Joining me today is Gary Schildhorn, a corporate attorney who nearly fell victim to a deep fake scheme involving voice cloning of his son. Gary, welcome. Thank you. Well, let's just jump into the scheme. You received a very believable call from your son, and what happened from there? I was in my car driving to work, and my phone rang, and I picked it up, and it was my son. And he said, Dad, I was in an accident. I broke my nose. I hit a car being driven by a pregnant woman. They arrested me. Dad, I'm in jail. You need to help me. He said uh, they assigned a lawyer to me. His name is Barry Goldstein. He's going to call you. You got to help me. I said, Brett, of course I'll help you. And I'll call you right back. He said, you can't. They took my phone. Dad, help me. I got to go. So at that point, I went into action mode. I'm a father. I'm a lawyer. And my son's hurt. There's a pregnant woman hurt. And he's in jail. Within the next minute, my phone rings again. The man introduces himself as Barry Goldstein. He said, I just met with your son. He has a broken nose. He was in an accident. He hit a car being driven by a pregnant woman. They arrested him at the scene because he failed the breathalyzer test. I interrupted him. I said, this, this can't be. I said, my son would never drink and drive. He explained that Brett had told him that, but that Brett had had an energy drink that morning. And that could have caused the failure of the breathalyzer test. He asked me if I would be interested in bailing out my son, that it may cost as much as ten dollars or $15,000. I said, of course I'm interested in bailing out my son. He said, I'll give you the number for the courthouse. You should call and arrange to post bail for your son. I hang up. I call the number he gives me. They answer correctly. They ask for my son's name. They ask for the case number, which Barry Goldstein had provided. They told me that, indeed, they had my son, that bail was set at $90,000, and that I needed to post a $9,000 cash bond to bail him out. But there was a problem. The county bail bondsman was away on a family emergency. The solution was that you could post what they called an attorney's bond. I said, I am an attorney. He said, yeah, but you didn't enter your appearance on behalf of your son. There's a Barry Goldstein. You should call him back, and he should be able to arrange to post the bond. Hang up. I called Barry Goldstein back. He said, yeah, I could post a bond for your son. I'm a member of a credit union, so you would need to go to a kiosk and take the cash to a kiosk and send it to me. And I can post the bond, but I'm leaving for a conference in California. I got to get to the airport in two hours, so you need to hurry. And he gave me the address of the kiosk, and that's when the calls stopped. And it was the first time I had a chance to actually think. That's remarkable. I just want to point out, again, that you're a corporate attorney, and it sounds like the script here was incredibly realistic. Yeah. In addition to that, I mean, in my practice, I've dealt with securities fraud and bank fraud. So I have my antenna up to some extent to scams and frauds, but it wasn't up at that minute. That was my son that I needed to help. So once you had a chance to kind of think rationally about this, what were your next steps? So the first thing I did is I called my daughter-in-law and told her about the call and told her I was going to help and asked her to please call my son's work to tell them that he wouldn't be in, that he was in an accident. I hung up with her and I started to make some other calls to contacts I had in that county to check this out. 
But before I could get too far, I get a FaceTime call from my son. And he goes, Dad, it's me. My nose is fine. I'm fine. You're being scammed. And I sat there in my car and I repeated to him, it was your voice. It was your voice. It was your voice. I was amazed because it was his cadence. It was his tone. It was the words he would use. It was his voice. Right after that, when I knew it was a scam, I continued to communicate with this Barry Goldstein while I invited law enforcement to become involved. The Philadelphia police declined because I hadn't lost any money. And the FBI said they were aware of the scam, but they knew that these people were using burner phones and cryptocurrency. The kiosk that he was sending me to was a kiosk that would have converted my cash to cryptocurrency. He said, and there's nothing they could do at the time. And so I was left uh, frustrated with no remedy when with Barry Goldstein still telling me every few minutes he was leaving for the airport, please get the money as soon as I can to get my son out of jail. That must have been incredibly frustrating. And it's definitely in line with what we see in investigations in this area. It's just all too easy for a novice to a moderate hacker to obfuscate where they are using, as you said, burner emails, burner phone numbers, VPN. You ended up on Capitol Hill of all places, and it sounds like you didn't take no for an answer from law enforcement. So how did you end up on Capitol Hill and what was your goal up there? Yeah, that's an interesting question. When this occurred, this was in 2020, I realized that even though I hadn't lost any money, that people were losing money because I was almost hooked. I approached the Philadelphia newspaper, the Philadelphia Inquirer, and suggested they do a story. And they published a feature story in the Sunday edition telling people about this fraud, this scam. This past year in November, the Senate Subcommittee on Aging and Economic Policy were looking for witnesses. And it turns out that almost no one else has gone public with their stories either out of shame or embarrassment or fear. And one of the few instances of someone publicizing a scam was the article that they had written in the Philadelphia Inquirer. So the committee reached out to me and asked if I would be willing to testify. And I certainly agreed because the whole purpose of me going public in the beginning was to educate other people about this scam. The reaction to that testimony was so unpredictable and surprising. After the article had come out in 2020, I had gotten many voicemails and emails at my firm, that's the address they could find, telling me that they had been involved in similar scams. But when the testimony was shown on uh, C-SPAM and then posted on social media by the committee, it went crazy viral. I have almost no social media presence and over 40 million people saw the video or passed it around or things like that. And I think it's from what I said earlier, there are no people telling the story and people were fascinated and wanted to let other people know that this type of sophisticated scam was occurring. Right. And incredibly apt that the Committee on Aging would take up the issue because unfortunately, these scams target the aging population way too often. Do you have any idea why you were targeted? No. Interesting. And have you been able to kind of track where your son's voice was available and how a threat actor would have been able to perform realistic voice cloning? What I've learned and what I know from just life is that our voices are all over the place. 
If I called your cell phone, there may be a recorded message that you have left with your voice on it. Even if someone calls you with a wrong number and they start asking you, is this so-and-so? And sorry, I was trying to reach, do you know that person? Any kind of phone call that you answer, any kind of social media that you post, any voicemail that you leave. We don't live in a world where the sound of our voice is a rarity that you can't find it. It's around. So I think there were many ways that they could have found my son's voice. What do you think about solutions in this area? It's obvious from your story that law enforcement certainly doesn't have what it needs. Policymakers are trying to figure out what to do. What's your recommendation? I was asked this when I was at the Senate committee and part of my testimony to address this. I said, look, I understand that cryptocurrency has certain benefits for international trade and certain commodity trading, but it's become a riskless vehicle for fraudsters. If they could transfer money without any trace, then it allows the fraudsters to use this vehicle and there's no remedy. So my hope for legislation is that they somehow require the cryptocurrency banks to keep track of where the cryptocurrency is going so that there's a remedy. You can find the person that was perpetrating the fraud and find the money. That was my thought. Same statement as to burner phones. And now with AI, it would be the same issue that would be addressed with AI. Absolutely. And what do you think about privacy concerns? Because I think those are some of the challenges that policymakers will have as they find solutions for this. Do you see some sort of a balance there? Or do you think that we need to really shift our thinking and kind of look for broader solutions to this? It isn't, do you have privacy or do you have regulation? It's not a zero-sum game like that. It's how far do you allow privacy concerns to trump social issues such as fraud? The estimate of how much is being lost to this and other types of scams is in the multi-billion dollars. So do you have some restrictions on privacy which may affect some people in order to protect thousands of people from multi-billion dollar fraud? And legislation could be crafted like that where access to what otherwise would be private information can only be obtained with a court order. There are ways to not assure absolute privacy, but allow people to have privacy unless there's reason to believe that that privacy is being used to conceal illegal activity. And since it's been four years and you've been out advocating for solutions and exposure to these issues, what have you learned in general about cybercrime? What has surprised you? The one thing that surprised me the most is how reluctant people are to go public. The response to the video of my testimony were hundreds of thousands of social media responses saying, my uncle had this happen to them, I had this happen to me, my grandmother, my aunt. And none of these people apparently felt comfortable enough to tell their stories. I mean, daylight on these scams is the most effective remedy. It's more effective than legislation because it's immediate. You know, everybody learns about it and knows to be aware. The other suggestions that have come up is that people should have a family password so that if they get a call, they could say, what's our family password? And if the caller doesn't know it, you hang up. 
There are other possible solutions that may be effective. Another is the role of a bank teller. So the only human exchange that's not controlled by the scammers is when the intended victim has to go to the bank to withdraw cash. Most people do not have $10,000, $9,000 in cash. You can't Venmo that. You can't PayPal that. And so that's another possible way that that could be addressed. And I'm actually working on that with the AARP. That's terrific. And as we kind of conclude our discussion, do you have any final thoughts? When you hear the voicemails that I've received of how these people feel embarrassed and devastated and mortified that they were victims when they shouldn't feel that way. They're in a game with experts and they don't even know they're in a game. So I guess my final thoughts are that it's more than just an economic loss that's suffered by these victims. It's also an emotional loss. And the quicker we can get these scams exposed and highlighted and allow for remedies and protections, the better off we'll all be. That's great. Those are the perfect final words to sign off. Thank you for your time today, Gary. Thank you. For WCYB Digital Radio, I'm Melissa O'Leary, Partner and Chief Strategy Officer at Portalist Solutions. Joining me today was Gary Schildhorn, who nearly fell victim to a deep fake scheme. For more of our content, visit cybersecurityventures.com.